The following audio is brought to you by Summerside Community Church in London, Ontario. For more information on Summerside, visit us online at www.summersidechurch.ca. Thank you, worship team, and thank you to Jay and Liz Wright for, for leading us today. I'm glad to see both of them up here. I'm excited that they were able to make that, that happen. We are certainly blessed uh, by their ministry this morning. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here at Summerside, and we are in the middle of our By Faith series looking at Hebrews chapter 11, going through all these Old Testament heroes of faith and uh, learning from them. Rome wasn't built in a day, but they were laying bricks every hour. This is a quote from author and speaker James Clear, whose book, Atomic Habits, has recently sold over 10 million copies. And his core idea, thesis, is that small changes, alterations, small habits done every day over the course of a long period of time can accomplish great change, can accomplish great things, and make a colossal impact over the course of a lifetime, fundamentally changing who you will become and what you can accomplish. Even thinking of the idea of altering uh, the course of a plane one degree early on in its flight path can can alter the destination by hundreds and thousands of miles. And the biblical character that I believe understood this concept the most is that of Noah, the one who built the largest seaworthy wooden vessel of a size that rivaled the wonders of the ancient world, that would have fit you know, quite uncomfortably in the citywide sports fields over here, including the baseball field, and being over four stories high. And you can only accomplish something like this by working consistently over a long period of time. And for Noah, that would have been about just under 75 years, somewhere at the most 75 years. And you could similarly say of Rome, of that of Noah's Ark, that Noah's Ark wasn't built in a day, but he was nailing boards every hour. He was consistently working on it. So today we're going to look at what Hebrews 11 says about the faith of Noah. We're going to start by looking at the account of Noah in Genesis 6 and 7. Then we'll look at what Noah's faith was like, what it accomplished in Hebrews 11, 7. And we're going to end with how we can apply the faith of Noah and what that could accomplish in our own lives. And we're going to see that accomplishing the extraordinary by faith starts with everyday obedience. So if you have your, have your Bibles, we're going to start on Genesis 6. We're going to start uh, at the beginning. Genesis 6, turn with me. And uh, we're not going to be able to get to the whole account of the flood of Noah. There's so many details, lots of, lots of Bible study we could be doing. And uh, the women's Bible study have been going through Genesis. You can continue that on um, and you can join them in that. But we're going to just look at chapter 6 and 7 and then flip back over to Hebrews um, 11 in a second. Once we've kind of seen where, who Noah was, what, he was, what his context was like when he lived and what he did. So open your Bibles to Genesis 6. We're going to start in in verse 5. And let me read that for you. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. And his heart has 
was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. I want to leave it there for now. So, So what we see from Genesis 6 is that at the time of Noah, human wickedness had reached its peak. That all the inclination of the human heart was only wicked, only evil all the time, full of violence and corrupted. But these passages do not indicate that human wickedness is always at this level. As much and as sinful as the world has become in these days, it has not yet reached the level of the time of Noah. That's important for us to to recognize. Because of God's common grace working in uh, our our hearts and in history, we are able to still have this this remnant of of goodness and understanding what's right and wrong to some extent. And the full capacity of human wickedness and potential has not really reached the time of Noah. So this is is the peak and this is as bad as it gets. As much as things have gone bad in the last 100 100 years, more than 100 years, uh, in the last century has been pretty bad. Um, there have been times when things have been, been, been rough for the human heart. And, uh, but in terms of overall, it's this time of Noah where we see the full capacity of human wickedness at work. So what these verses do show is humanity's potential for wickedness. That, uh, that left to our own devices, we will turn further and further towards sin, violence, selfishness, greed, hatred, and overall wickedness. And we need to be aware that this capacity for wickedness is in our own hearts. Without divine intervention, we could and would become totally corrupted by our sin. And as I said, there's been times in history when human, human beings in regions and times and places have allowed themselves to get to the point of totally corrupted by their sin. I also want to point out that it specifically calls out in, in Genesis 6, 11, violence as something that God is offended by. And it's just, I think that's really interesting because our culture seems to have a particular affinity towards glorifying violence. And uh, I think that's just something to think about. Yeah, that's something to think about. Let's come back to that. So here we have also God's regret. God regrets having made humanity. Verses 6 and 7 mention that God... Um, regrets how humans have become. And this is an interesting concept because usually as human beings, when we say we regret something, we imply that we would have done something differently if we had, if given the chance. And some theologians have gone far to suggest that God would have done things differently if given the chance in this instance. However, that doesn't seem to square with some other passages in the Bible that talk about God's knowledge, his foreknowledge of the future and his power and his, his very nature. So a different way to understand this is that God has complex emotions. You know, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And there is an order and a, there's, there's a number to his will and emotions that is different from, from human beings. 
He can demonstrate regret over a decision he made while also believing it was the right decision and that he would do the same thing again for other important reasons. The Bible will often use human language to convey a divine emotion. And it it doesn't fully capture God's complex thoughts because nothing really can. So there are different levels to God's will and emotions. And from a purely relational level, he is expressing emotional regret for the pain for what human beings are doing. So this isn't inconsistent with his, his sovereignty over human history. It's just something to think about too. Noah finds favor with God. Uh, moving, moving on down to um, later in that chapter 6 and 7, uh, Noah finds favor with God. And very similarly to, okay, I'm jumping here. I'm jumping here. Noah is apparently the only one that God deems worthy of saving, despite humanity's sinfulness and corruption. Notice how Noah is said to be blameless among the people of his time. Blameless among the people of his time. Blameless among his generation. Think about that for a second. This generally means that Noah didn't have any apparent flaws, but doesn't imply his perfection. Because only Jesus is said to be perfect. I think it's an interesting statement. It appears as though Noah is being compared to his generation, to the people of his time. And it isn't just meeting an objective standard. He's also meeting a subjective judgment uh, to this. It's a subjective as well as an objective judgment. He stands out from the crowd. He lives differently. He goes against the grain. And if we think about how evil the wickedness of humanity had become at the time, this wouldn't have been very hard. If, if every inclination of the thoughts of human beings are evil all the time, he just has to not do that. So I, I, think, it's, I think comparison is a very dangerous thing, most cases. But in this instance, if we were to compare how we live with those around us, it can reveal whether we are on track to set ourselves apart as holy or if we're just going with the crowd. If there's nothing distinguishing us from the world then how can we say we are walking faithfully with God? Recently, I just, just read something about um, a pastor, Carl Lentz, who, who fell from, from his position because of a moral failing. Um, he was the pastor of Hillsong in, in the States. And a cultural commentator, a journalist, was saying how I don't expect, I, I'm not attracted to a religion that's just trying to be like me, that's just trying to be like the world. Attracted to something that's offering something different. It's a paraphrase. But that was, that was really interesting to think about. That if, if we're just trying to be like the world, then what, what are we offering to them? Not much. So this both calls us up to a higher standard of being blameless among our generation, but also lets us off the hook a little bit. Not too much, a little bit. Because we can compare ourselves to the people around us and we can be like, okay, like we are standing out. We are shining a light. So I think that's an important, it's a, it's a helpful exercise. Use that with caution. But seek to be like Noah, to be blameless among the people of our time, of our generation, to live differently, live distinctly, set apart as God's called us to be. A people for, for God. So now we move on to Genesis six thirteen to 7, 5. And this is where Noah gives all the instructions to build the ark. And I'm, I'm not going to read it for you t- today. You can read it uh, for yourself. But there's a couple of passages that just indicate God gives instructions. 
Noah follows them. God gives instructions. Noah obeys them. And it's very, it's very simple. And in those just few verses, we have Noah obeying God and doing everything that he was told. It's only a few verses, but like a lot is implied in there. A lot is implied. Now we discussed Enoch last week. How he also walked faithfully with God, having an intimate personal relationship um, with God throughout his life, preaching to others to do the same, and then being taken up to be with God. And this, this contrast um, between Enoch and, and Noah is very fascinating. You know, Enoch, Enoch's great-grandson Noah doesn't get taken up to heaven, but he's called to build this boat. Enoch, who gets whisked up to heaven... Um, I wonder if, if Noah felt kind of like he got the short end of the stick here because he's, he has to put in the hours at the lumber mill and Enoch is there up with God. And here's the thing. There are times when following God is easy and, and God's presence is, is really close. And, and ministry is a delight because God is moving in powerful ways. He's just whisking us along. But most of the time, Following God involves discipline and persistence over a long period of time. Recall Isaiah 40, 31. That those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. This is the reality of walking with God. Sometimes you soar. He takes you. Sometimes you run. He sustains you. Sometimes you walk and he's with you. Sometimes you crawl on your knees. Sometimes you lie flat on your face before God, before the Lord. We are called to hope in the Lord. He will renew our strength in patience, in perseverance, in obedience. So this is exactly what Noah does. He obeys every one of God's very detailed instructions. So let's see what Hebrews has to say about his faith. Let's go. We were in Genesis 6 uh, and 7. Now we're going to jump all the way to Hebrews. So they're going to the other end of the Bible. If you've got your Bibles with you, we can turn there. You should have it bookmarked. I mean, we're in Hebrews 11, guys. There's only one chapter. Um, So we should be able to find it easily. Now we're on Hebrews 11, verse 7. Verse 7. Let me read it for you. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. So in this verse, I'm going to answer four questions about Noah's faith. The first is, what was Noah's faith like? The second is, what did Noah's faith accomplish? The third is, how can we apply Noah's faith in our lives? And the fourth is, what could that accomplish look, accomplishment look like? What could that look like in our lives? All right, let's go to the first one. What was Noah's faith like? So similar to the other Hall of Faith members, Noah trusts and believes God. It says in holy fear, he fears God more than man. You know, the beginning of the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But, but Noah's faith involves one very specific thing, one very specific action, building a boat, building a boat. And this is different than a lot of other of the, the people that we're looking at in this series. 
And what this means is that Noah's faith is an active faith. It works hard. It gets the job done. Noah's faith is put into practice by his building the ark. By faith, Noah built an ark. Faith is a verb. It involves action, doing stuff. And this is the contention that James, the brother of Jesus, had in the next book following Hebrews. James chapter 2, verse 17 says that faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Dead. It says that. In verse 24, James also says that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Faith is not complete until it puts us to work. True saving faith involves action, life change, works, deeds, getting stuff done. I think it's super important to understand that faith in Jesus saves you. We can't add anything to the work of Christ for our salvation. Nothing. We emphasize that in our preaching here, in our worship. But your life doesn't, if your life doesn't demonstrate that you've been saved by grace through faith in Christ, you probably haven't been saved by faith, by grace through faith in Christ. You need to actively pursue a relationship with Jesus. You need to actively seek relationships with fellow believers in community. You need to actively care for the needs of others around you. You need to actively root out the sin in your life that so easily entangles. You need to actively become more like Jesus. Of course, we do this by God's grace, in community, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through understanding and practicing God's word. Christianity is a do more than a don't. We tend to focus on the don'ts. It's easier to not do stuff than to do stuff, right? But it's all about what we do. For some reason, we have split this verse in Ephesians that I'm going to read for you into two memory verses instead of one. Listen to Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And it continues on. For we are God's handiwork, Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Which God prepared in advance for us to do. That's active faith. Does something for us. It does something in us and through us so that we get to work. Building for the future like Noah did. So that's what Noah's faith was like. It was an active faith. Active. It did stuff. So what did Noah's faith accomplish? Hebrews indicates Noah's Faith accomplishes three things. The first is Noah's faith saves his family. Noah's active faith led to the salvation of his family. It's important to say that we, that you, are not ultimately responsible for the salvation of your children or other family members or those closest to you. We believe salvation is between you and God. God saves. We respond in faith. Everyone is responsible for their own sin and can either pay for it themselves or allow Christ to pay for it on their behalf. You can't force anyone into the kingdom of God. Just like Noah couldn't force anyone onto the ark. Noah was not responsible for getting his family onto the ark. 
But he was responsible for building the ark. That's very important. You are not responsible for saving your friends and family, but you are responsible for giving them an opportunity to be saved. By teaching them about Christ, by showing them Christ in your life. Parents, you are not responsible for your kids' salvation or how they turn out. But you are responsible for raising them up in the faith, discipling them, pointing them to Jesus, praying for them. Your faithfulness in parenting is between you and God and their salvation is between them and God. Faith in action looks like living out the teachings of Jesus in your life in a way that can't be ignored and is attractive to others. Consistent, persistent, faithful obedience to God shines through to those closest to you. So Noah's faith in action saves his family. But it also amplifies his witness to the world. That's the second thing that it accomplishes. Hebrews 11.7 says that by faith, Noah condemned the world. If this seems like a negative statement, it's because it is. Noah's faith pronounced judgment upon the world as deserving of punishment. And this is different from what Jesus talks about, but judge not lest you be judged. But what does it really mean? He's not going down just like judging people. He's just, his actions proclaim a different way. Well, notice that this condemnation is not brought about by Noah's words, but by his faith in action in building the boat, building the ark. Noah's righteousness revealed the wickedness in the, of the world. It has that contrast. Eugene Peterson paraphrases, paraphrases it this way in the message. His act of faith drew a sharp line between the evil of the unbelieving world and the rightness of the believing world. I want to say that again because I really like that, that phrasing. His act of faith drew a sharp line between the evil of the unbelieving world and the rightness of the believing world. He made things clear. Noah's daily work of obedience walking with God, pursuing righteousness, and constructing a giant floating structure sat in sharp contrast to how the world was living for themselves, only evil all the time, full of violence, corruption. Have you ever noticed how non-believers sometimes get offended by your faith in action? Like when when you put your faith in action, just for yourself, not... Not for anyone else, but you decide to, to make some kind of moral stance. Do, do something that you're convicted about. If you feel convicted to not watch a certain TV show or movie because of its message or because of its, of its content. People get offended by that. Have you noticed? Other Christians get offended by that too. And defensive. Having moral standards of any kind gets people's guard up. They're like, oh... Aren't you holy? They feel condemned. They feel judged. Not because of anything you said about them, but something that you decided to do. A decision you decided to make for your own life. And people are like, whoa. Don't like that. If you haven't experienced this before, you either don't have non-Christian friends or you don't have very high moral standards. We are in serious trouble these days. 
Because the social pressure is so strong. And, you know, Hollywood and Disney and all these, these companies, have con- Netflix has continued to push and push and push and push until it's, you know, it's, wh- it's whatever. We have to draw the line at some point. Of course, we should be careful never to af- actively offend somebody with our words or actions unnecessarily. And it's in ways that have nothing to do with the gospel. We are called to love non-believers the way that Christ loves us, no matter how evil or sinful they are. And make sure people are offended by God's truth and the gospel, not by our tone or things unrelated to Jesus. The best way to speak the truth in love is to live the truth. Of course, we need to to use words. And, you know, that's how Noah's faith amplified his witness. Is he was also known as a preacher or evangelist. Now, I don't, I don't take this too, too literally. Peter refers to Noah as a preacher of righteousness. I'm not totally convinced that Noah was actively preaching sermons in the marketplace or the town square. Because, you know, we have no record of Noah actively uh, preaching in the Bible. Um, but it is possible. I think he's too busy. I don't uh, I don't know. You got a bill. It's a big boat. You ever been to Kentucky? It's big. I haven't. I heard about it though. That's a big boat. That's a lot of work. So I, I tend to think that the ark was his witness to the world. It was his, it was his life with a, was a sermon. His life proclaimed the message of the, to the world. You know, obviously, like I said, you need to use words to proclaim the gospel. That's important. I think that's dangerous to think that, oh, we don't, don't use words, just use action. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But we need to put our faith in action first before we jump to our words. So even if Noah's message was one of condemnation, it was a positive witness to the world. The good news is that the difference between our day and Noah's day is that we should expect people to respond to the gospel, to the preaching of the word. No one say for his seven family members, hailed as one of the gr- history's greatest preachers, allegedly, Noah. No one responded to Noah's preaching. Nobody. Zero. zero. I mean, you can count seven, but zero. In contrast to Jonah, probably one of the worst prophets and preachers in history, speaking one sentence to the city of Nineveh, and the entire population responded in repentance and faith. Jesus said that his sheep know his voice and that the father is drawing people to himself. And today we can expect people to respond to the gospel. And we bring a message of grace and love and peace. And for those to believe in Christ, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's exciting. So you pair that, you pair that message of the gospel with living a life of obedience to God. We're going, to, we're going to see people come, come to know, come, know the Lord through this church, through the, this people. Because God is working. So he had, he had a witness to the world. He saves his family. He also became close with God. By his act of faith, Noah saved those closest to him. Amplified his witness and became close with God. So Noah's active faith brought him closer in relationship with God. So Hebrews says he became an heir of righteousness by his faith. And this language is really important. Noah's active faith did not achieve perfection before God and earn his favor, but he became an heir of righteousness by his faith. His faith provided him 
with, with righteousness from God. The difference is that righteousness did not come from Noah. It came from God because he's an heir. He didn't bring it up himself. He received it. So important to understand. This brought Noah into a right relationship with God. Despite his sinful nature and the fall, he was able to restore that relationship by faith. And from our perspective, this is accomplished in Jesus's sacrifice for our sin on the cross, paying the penalty that we deserve, which we can now access by faith so we can have a personal relationship with God. And his active faith brings him close to God. And for us, it makes us more like Christ and closer with Christ. As we become closer with God through our everyday obedience, we become more like Jesus, the one who practiced perfect obedience to God is the closest with God. We come with him. We become with him. Our faithful acts of everyday obedience bring us closer to God as well. Here's a question I have for you. Are you becoming closer with God each day? Each week? Each year? Why or why not? How do you know? You may feel like you are or not, but how do you know? The only way you can become closer with God is through applying your faith in active obedience to God. Daily obedience. An active relationship with God in your everyday rhythm of life. If that isn't you, you are going to to go by, years are going to go by, and you are going to be further from God, not closer to him. Further from God. Less like Christ, not more like Christ. If your daily rhythm, your weekly rhythm, your monthly rhythm, this this rhythm of your life, it's going to continue on the way it's been going. Something's got to change. But if you have, if you have been putting into practice following Jesus and and, and following him in obedience, years are going to go by and you're going to become closer with God. You're going to become more like Jesus as time goes on. That's exciting. So how do we do that? We need to start thinking like Noah and start building our faith through daily, consistent, persistent obedience. So let's let's think about how we can apply Noah's faith in our lives. So if you want your family and friends to know Christ, you want the world to see Christ in you, and you want to become like Christ, you need to commit to simple acts of obedience every day or everyday obedience. We like that word here, something like that. Just like Noah got to work designing, planning, preparing to build this colossal wooden floating structure, we need to begin to design our lives around everyday obedience to God. Putting a plan in place. What's the plan? It's, it's, it's typical in our Western evangelicalism to just kind of float through being a Christian rather than like thinking about how we're actually going to do it. Um, this is kind of rebelling against the, the kind of the old dry forms, but, uh, we do need to make sure we have some kind of plan for spiritual growth. We do some kind of plan. And so, um, let's think about that. You know, we start with the basics, you know, Bible reading, prayer, attending church. Nice to have a plan for that. Um, these are things you already do. You know, keep it up. Other things, memorizing scripture, writing God's word in our hearts so that we can live them out day to day. That's something that, that sticks with you. If you've, if you've memorized scripture as a kid and you still remember those verses, that's pretty powerful. 
One thing we've emphasized here at Summerside before is family worship. Having a plan daily and weekly to read, sing, and pray together as a family or in a community group. Taking regular time during the day, during the week to disconnect from the world and connect with God and his people. I'm not going to go on a rant on technology. I'm saving that for another sermon. Sometime. Left, I, I was going to say something about left to our own devices. You, you get it, right? Next time. Having times without screens or devices with people or alone with God. Spending time with God. Doing that as a regular act of obedience. Intentionally taking a day, a week to rest and worship. Practicing Sabbath on Saturday or Sunday or another day of the week. Thankfully, Jesus has given us that freedom. But we, we don't use that freedom like we should. You get to, you get to practice Sabbath. Okay. I'm, I'm into this right now. These simple acts of obedience to God will cause you to be more like Christ and draw you closer to God. These are, these are things that we, we get to do, we get to practice in order to draw us closer to God. So now it comes to you guys. You need to start thinking about how God is leading you, what he's leading you to start practicing every day or to keep up what you've been practicing. It's February. Those New Year's resolutions are starting to get kind of stale. We need to amp it up again. What habit do you need to, to break? What habit do you need to start in order to grow closer with God? What area do you need to grow in? What Christian practice do you need to adopt or start fresh? Who do you need to approach to ask for help with this? God is calling you to a life of everyday obedience, normal obedience every day for the sake of those around you as a witness to the world so you can have a closer relationship with him. For your friends and family to know Christ, for the world to see Christ and for you to become like Christ. So what could this look like? What could this look like in your life? What, what could an ark legacy be in your life? Just like it was for Noah. You may have heard of Jonathan Edwards, the great pastor, writer, theologian, revival preacher in the 18th century. You may not have heard of his wife, Sarah Edwards, his wife and mother of their 11 children. Now, Sarah's close relationship with God and role in discipling her children is well documented. She had a very close, intimate relationship with God. And there was a study conducted of the Edwards descendants in the year 1900. So everything prior to the year 1900 that found that there had been 13 college presidents, 65 professors, 100 lawyers, 30 judges, 66 physicians, and 80 holders of public office, including three senators, three mayors, three state governors, one U.S. vice president, and one controller of the U.S. Treasury. Sarah Edwards quite literally shaped the future of America as a, as a wife and mother through her everyday obedience to God, shown through her descendants. This reminds me of my own uh, grandmother, Romilda, who as a Brazilian singer of Christian children's songs, you can still get on YouTube today, uh, who married a Canadian missionary and widower, became the, the mother to five adolescent and young adults. She has been praying for her kids and 20 grandkids plus spouses and even more great grandkids every night for decades, every night. I know this because she tells me every time I see her. God knows the impact that she's had in our lives. God knows 
and in the world. My, my oldest cousin works uh, in, in the U.S. military in the Pentagon, I believe. We don't know what he does. Is, uh, our uncle is like, I don't know. He doesn't tell me. I'm not, he's not allowed to tell me. Uh, but I'm, sh- I'm sure grandma's prayers help in that, that case. I'm sure they help. And her faithfulness in prayer, it can impact world events. Think of it's this church building. Think of this building here. Think of the building that's still there half next to it, right here. This is only here because people have been giving faithfully for decades, for a generation. People have given to this church. That's, a, that's an ark legacy. My father has modeled everyday obedience as he has faithfully served here for 30 years. It is the members of this church that have faithfully served in every ministry for years and years. We still get to, to have baptism services. Seeing, seeing dads baptize their kids. Think of the impact this continues to make. Faithful obedience for the long term. Think of the impact you can make through everyday obedience. What will your ark legacy be? You need to start somewhere. Before there was an ark, there's just wood and pitch. That's it. Not much to go on. It's nothing to go on. But we can, through everyday obedience, accomplish the extraordinary by faith. Because we have a big God. And he's working amongst us. And if this seems daunting to you, don't worry. We got to get to Jesus. Jesus is the one who does the heavy lifting. He says, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Jesus' everyday obedience accomplished the extraordinary on our behalf. He lived a perfect life, became the perfect sacrifice of our sins. It's through his power we can accomplish the extraordinary by faith every day by obeying his teachings. Jesus told uh, a parable about two men who were building their houses. One built his house um, by the beach, beachfront, beautiful property, big, big, big house, probably had a hot tub or something. Um, and his, his foundation was on the sand. There's, there's no foundation. And so the winds came and the floods came. The flood came and wiped it out. It was gone. The second man, he built his house on the rock, firm foundation. It was a simple dwelling. The one, one bedroom, I don't know. But uh, the wind came and the floods came and it stood firm. It stood strong. And Jesus said, the one who built his house upon the rock is the one who listens and obeys my commandments and puts them into practice. As I mentioned earlier in Atomic Habits, James Clear says this, every action you take is a vote for the person you wish to become. Here's my challenge to you today. Who are you becoming? What are your daily habits doing to you? Are they drawing you close to God? Are they making you like Christ? Or are you becoming more and more like the world around you? Is your life pointing your friends and family to Jesus, to the giver of life? Or is it a dull and dim reflection of Christ? How is your daily and weekly rhythm drawing you close to God? If these are tough questions, I want you to know that a flood is coming. But this isn't a flood of judgment. This is a flood of God's mercy and God's grace in this this world. I believe 
We will see a revival in this country unless Jesus returns first. Maybe in the next few years, maybe in 75 years, but one or the other is coming. Jesus will return. We will see God move in a powerful way. Are you ready for those two scenarios? We need to start building our lives and this church and setting it up for revival. Preparing our hearts for Jesus' return. Preparing our hearts and our lives to see people come because we're shining a light to them. And it starts with our own revival through acts of everyday obedience to God. Today, in prayer and worship together. We need to continue on as we've been going. Continue to to gather and worship. To continue to to disciple our our kids. Continue to, to seek the Lord in prayer. We don't live in the days of Noah. We live in the days of the church and the spirit and the proclamation of the gospel going forth into the world in power. We can expect to see, and we are seeing tens and hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands come to know Christ by the power of God's spirit through the prayers of God's people. That's happening today across the world. It'll happen here. I believe it. It's not going to happen overnight. But just like for Noah, it starts with everyday obedience. Everyday, normal, everyday, consistent. That's what we're about as a church. What faithful act of obedience is God calling you today? Spend some time to dwell on that as we worship together, as we sing, and uh, let me pray. Our Father in heaven, you are holy, you are good, and we seek your move the move of your spirit in our lives. I I pray that you'd reveal to each one of us one way that we can continue in obedience to you, following you. What's our next step, whether that's baptism, whether that's, you know, getting back to our reading plan that we started, started last month and are kind of off on it or getting back to a family rhythm of a family worship, getting back to coming out weekly, regularly, getting involved with the programs here, getting together with a community group, or fellow believers in a certain, in, in other contexts. God, we, we ask you to reveal that to us and lead us in that way. Let us seek to be, to have the faith of Noah, putting our faith into practice in regular obedience. And God, may your grace, may your grace be revealed in us. May we be transformed by your goodness to us. Help us to know that we are loved by you and that we can continue to do great things in your name because we are seeking you in obedience and faith. And Lord, we, we ask you to move again by your spirit in our hearts and in this world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.